Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we are joined by musician Tom Krell, also known as How to Dress Well. This is a long and really special episode as Tom is a rare combination of immense intellectualism and musical talent. So what happens in the space where philosophy, pop culture, and environmental activism overlap? The next 100 minutes or so is the answer. I'm Lil Internet, joined by New Models founder Carly Busta, artist Dan Keller, and How to Dress Well. Let's get into it. Today we are joined by Tom Krell, or as you might know him, the American singer, songwriter, and producer who performs under the name How to Dress Well. If you are familiar with his work, you may know that Tom is also a scholar of 18th and 19th century German philosophy, currently writing his dissertation on nihilism. So I have a feeling that the conversation we're about to have is going to cover a lot of ground. But to start, maybe we could begin with the music side of things. Tom, you put out a record about a year ago called The uh, Anteroom. Then more recently this spring, you put out an EP, a bunch of remixes that's related to that album. And you find yourself here in Berlin midway through tour. Um, Yeah, how do we get so lucky to, to find you in Berlin? Yeah, well, I'm kind of like not really touring right now. I just had a a couple shows, uh, one in Kiev and a show in Moscow, and there was some mix up with my Russian visa, maybe maybe predictably, yeah, I don't know, sabotage. (laughs) Um, And so, in order for the Russian promoter to sort that, he was like, "Will you do me a favor and just stay in Europe for a week?" And I was like, "Sure, I'll go visit all my friends in Berlin. I used to live here." Spent a lot of time here over the last decade. It's nice to be back. Like I was saying to you earlier, it kind of like oscillates between feeling like a free vacation and a forced vacation, which is (laughs) a bit bizarre, but I'm happy to be here. Happy to be in Berlin. Today you dedicated your day to the climate. Yeah, I wish I could say as much. I mean, I kind of missed the big moment at uh, Brandenburg Tor. And then the thing I keep telling myself is I just want to be positive about the climate strike. (laughs) I just want to be positive about the climate strike. Well, Dan, you were there too. I, I, went, there to, I, went, I went there too. Um, I didn't necessarily have the same. Obviously, that my I desire want. to be positive about it, it like exists in proportion to my actual feelings about it being like right. somewhat of a. I don't want to say this on a thing because then that's my take in pub, on the record. That's the right. problem with podcasts. <laughs> I know. I think They're I have a record. safe take. What's your safe take? It was take? an environment to. Um, get children capture their imagination about protest and and yeah taking it to the streets and and then it was like their first experience uh for for this and by the time they're teenagers they're going to be throwing molotov cocktails and like blowing up (laughs) exactly uh, um oil trucks it it reminded me of when i went to see like this gang of four concert and it was all these dads with their kids like yelling at me for smoking weed. I was like, I don't know, I was 19 or 20 when this happened. But it reminded me a lot of that. Like it was very, you know, I mean, gentle. I didn't, yeah, I didn't see one person under the age of 10 
screaming that we will not be rid of the last king until he's hung from the entrails of the last priest. <laughs> Disappointing. <laughs> I mean, mostly notably was just like checking out Gen Z style. But then, you know, there was a few moments there where it was like touching somehow like the right combination of kids and chanting occasionally. It was like, oh, but I don't know. What are these slogans? There's no planet B. Like once that's already in, like that's a meme. I understand what the first person who said that, that kind of accomplish something by spreading it but what is the gesture of putting that on a sign and going around marching with it i just don't i just don't really understand what any of the messaging is really accomplishing it's just like consciousness raising but to who and also community coherence it's like you you're in the streets you see that there's a number of other people who also back (laughs) you up there's that feeling i mean but i actually have a question i do want to get some music too where this is like a preamble to it I wonder, in your opinions, what is the missing element that separated this from past protests that you've participated in or are aware of? Well, I I can speak to that, but I have a nascent thought, which is something like this. The climate strike is a really powerful opportunity because it's not a, it doesn't like present itself as a political issue. It presents itself as like a cosmic issue, like a, 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 a truly universal human issue, the planet B metaphor, right? But then the problem is because there isn't a political quantum that's like packed into it, into the protocol, it's undecidable whether it will have a political affect or be utterly neutralized. Yeah, there's right. n- there was no actionables. That was the main issue. There like, was nothing, yeah. But still, okay, when we go back to Occupy, there were no actionables either, right? Except that was always occupation the line. was like per se action. True, that's true. Although yeah. it was very much like a theatrical op- occupation, right? I know, but yeah. like the, I would, that's the... The touchstone for me, which I would distinguish it from, like my experience in Chicago where I was living when the Occupy stuff was really kicking off, had a frightening energy in the street. There was. And you did the sense that people were living in the streets as though this is the near future. And you now live in LA. Los Angeles, And you see an occupation of the streets that's not at all ironic or just theater. (laughs) Yeah, no gesture whatsoever. I I just read some (laughs) crazy statistic that there's as many homeless people in Skid Row as in all of Michigan. The entire state. But it's yeah. not, yeah. It's not even Skid just Skid Row. Skid Row isn't even the problem. Skid Row is everywhere now in LA. Yeah, right. So like, you know, there's been like people, the conservative estimate, like the on the books at City Hall estimate is 60,000 homeless people in LA County. What is the percentage difference from say pre-2008? Yeah, I was reading something that there's been a 60% increase in, in the oh, last like 10 years or something. Jesus, yeah. You know, you say like Skid Row as the example, shout out to No Olympics LA on Twitter. They're an amazing resource for understanding the gravity of the situation in LA. They have really shown me how this is a different kind of houselessness than we've seen in the past. And I like that distinction, not homelessness, but we say houselessness. Yeah, yeah, that's the the new idiom. It like refers to the thing that is missing rather than a person who totally, is, yeah. has a, some kind of property that obtains in them. I mean, the thing that's interesting and staggering is that the, the this massive boom in um, homelessness in Los Angeles are people who are now homeless in the neighborhoods in which they used to have homes. That is mental. Right. Can so I say like mental? Some, I'm, yeah. I'm not British, but can I say that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're a world traveler. Um, but, so Positive in other words, you're saying somebody who lived three doors down from you for five years, you'll suddenly see now lives under living, the bridge, right? Yeah. on the same street, say. Yeah, well, they live under the bridge so long as the police aren't there to sweep their homes away, which is LA's like official on the book city policy. Like for health reasons, once every so often they show up. And they just tell everyone to get all of their shit because they're going to sweep the entire street. And, you know, 
it often happens like in the middle of the night. It's just fully flagrant. Like, I mean, what's amazing is I just had this image of like becoming favela of LA. It's like not even, yeah. you know, it's like people are still going to live there. <laughs> the housing structure is just changing. It's no yeah. longer just these bungalows. It's now bungalows and also tents. Like, yeah, that's I heard just some the- boomers, like I was at a stoplight and I heard some boomers out my window talking. They were standing on the street corner waiting to cross in Echo Park. And they were like, this isn't even the first world. <laughs> in Echo Park. Yeah, yeah, in Echo Park. And I was like, okay, yeah, like the bungalows and the favelas. I mean, yeah. I don't think the United States really is very first world anymore, to be honest. I mean, specifically LA, though, I always think about this. Like, sometimes I feel like I'm missing out on living in LA, even though I feel like it's a totally unsustainable place. I mean, it is like the Wild West still. Kind yeah. of. It's, it's the like place the, at the end of time. Right. right. And yeah. it's like t- totally unsustainable. And it's and just it, a, a, purely a product of terraforming too, right? Right. Yeah. You know, like the this book Cadillac Desert, which is about uh, the yeah, like water, yeah, yeah. water wars and Absolutely. the water theft that they made drained, LA. Great one, book. They drained yeah. an entire lake already in the yeah. early 20th century, I think. But I... Is, do you think, I mean, I know you lived there, moved there, but is there this aspect of giving up when you move to L.A. in terms of not resisting and just living like, I only have one life to live. I'm just going <laughs> to go to L.A. and just enjoy the utopia. Isn't that, that what everybody my, yeah. says about Berlin, though? I feel like they're very similar. But Berlin is a sustainable. Some people come no. to Berlin because they want to like do something and it's sustainable to do it. Here. But I also, think, I also think a lot of artists love and feel so inspired in Berlin because like they're not exposed to the brutality of America anymore. Yes. I mean, like in L.A., I'm like exposed at every turn to the like yeah. abject poverty that our society produces. Whereas just in the last week, I've been like, it's so nice to just be on my bike in Berlin and like the families and the parks. And it's so amazing. I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, where do they hide the homeless people in Germany? I'm like, oh, maybe they actually like do enough violence internationally that they don't like have to have homelessness in Germany. I don't know exactly how the deck gets shuffled, but there's also like I would a say dwindling population. They have public housing. Know, but there's also a dwindling <laughs> yeah. population in Germany and there's a lot of space and it's also yeah. one of the wealthiest nations. But, I mean, I feel like Germany in general is trying to say budget surplus, like a lot of renewable, like setting the standard in renewable, the renewable energy. Thing is bullshit. They they've they're they have more car, more emissions now than they did before because they phased out nuclear energy and renewables can't can't make up the gap. It's actually they just sell, they also just sell are. their carbon. Germany, Germany has Germany has failed at their climate targets worse than America has. Uh, but their targets were more, uh, much no better, similar. Right? No, no, no like, similarly, that, uh, Germany it's. Think about I, the car I was culture in Germany. To the Economist today, and they said <laughs> Germany was a model, like uh-huh. inspiring country for like investing in renewables, and that Germany alone, their subsidy on solar panels helped lower the cost of solar panels globally. Well, okay, but that also. That's that's the part of the problem. <laughs> They're subsidizing it. They if they they shouldn't need to be subsidized, honestly, because they should be cost effective. Otherwise, it's stupid, and they're not as cost effective as nuclear or but other kinds R&D, of things. But it's R and D, isn't it? Like, right. You like, no, go through this phase of not anymore. No, no, Maybe it hasn't been. Yeah, yeah, that was twenty years ago. China, and it, the real reason the, the cost dropped is because of China, not because of Germany. Absolutely, China, China. Flooded the market about. 12, I know this because I invested in American solar panel companies, and two or two of them went bankrupt, and it was because of China, and that's great. Uh, I mean, but that was why. And they don't work very well in northern latitudes comparatively. Mm-hmm. They've invested a ton of them. They're not 
a good fit for Germany. They did it kind of, you know, willy nilly. Uh, there's lots of investment in that, but they're still ter- they're destroying primordial forests for coal. It's still they use more coal than France does. They use more coal than than Russia does. It's not it, they're hypocrites, is what Germany is. <laughs> the, think about the car industry. Think about the diesel scandals. They have some of the most. Oh, I know they that. The most they are very evil, good at hiding lies. <laughs> they have the, yeah, exactly. They have some of the most evil, craven, um, uh, uh, you know, like corporate culture here. I mean, think about Deutsche Bank. Also, like the, the level of corruption, well, <laughs> very high. These guys are really neurotic. <laughs> I mean, been, they're, they're, you know, they've been through the great, like, crazy trauma, and they're trying so hard to be like <laughs> the perfect country <laughs> after. And then we got to give them a chance. People scamming on the billionaire level and. I don't know what to believe anymore. (coughs) To answer your question, though, um, I I moved to L.A. thinking that I was going to, like, escape to some joy. And I found that I've been just blasted by... This is actually where a lot of my last record gets its, like, absolutely suicidal energy from. But I was just just so (laughs) blasted by, like, the isolation of the libertarian American psychology. Like it was the first time I've ever lived somewhere where there's no public transport at all. I go from my home into my car to like a restaurant where I've agreed to meet with other people through text message. We stay there for like an agreed upon normative like amount of time, 90 minutes, get back in my car, go back to my domicile. You can't get out of your car. Otherwise you're like, you run the risk of like appearing like a vagrant. You're just passing by like tent city after tent city. And then even more confounding is like it's February It's like 72 degrees. There's no one in the park. You go to the park with your dog, you're alone in this like massive, beautiful park and there's just traffic flying all around you. It's like a truly uncanny place to live. So I wanted to just like go to the end of history and I ended up in the fucking... <laughs> in the, like the worst, the great trenches. place to work on a dissertation on nihilism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, sadly, I hate to like disappoint my nihilism. Like my dissertation is on uh, nihilism as it's articulated by uh, Friedrich Heinrich Jacobi uh-huh. in 1799. So it's not like the the meme. Yeah, it's not the memeifiable like <laughs> oh, <right>. Nietzsche Russian, <laughs> you know, Nietzsche Dostoevsky nihilism. It's okay. like nihilism as like like a way of diagnosing dogmatism in theory building. Oh, I see. So it was like yeah. the metaphysical question. Yeah, because the other coin, other side of my dissertation coin is a, it's like a big commentary on Hegel's science of logic. Got so. it. Got it. Well, wah, so wah. With, with this anyway, <laughs> running, running through one part of your brain and against this backdrop of the world in 2019, you put together this record. Um, how, how was it a response to both this kind of crazy commons that we're living in now and also the state of music production right now? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have, I'm still like the year, the record's not even a year old. So I'm still like really in it in a way that I, I probably will know better how to answer that question in 18 months. But I really do think that the record was a response to like the lack of Sittlichkeit or like even like just a lack of inter, an, in, an interhuman dimension in mm-hmm. Los Angeles and then being thrown back on my own resources and finding that like hell is me, not uh-huh. other people. Like hell was 100% internal. Like I thought by going to LA, I was going to be leaving certain things like away. And I found them just like reconfirmed and redoubled in like the most distressing ways. So I really found like 
the my interiority became present to me in Los Angeles in like a totally new way. Can you say more? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really isolating place to live. I think everybody I know, like about half of the people who moved from New York to LA are now moving back <laughs> because it's super, um, it's a slower rhythm than New York. And just the day-to-day quantum of like intersubjective experience is so much lower right. than in New York or Berlin or something. Like you can spend weeks and weeks and weeks in LA and, and really not encounter anyone outside of an absolutely utility-bound context. Has Amazon changed that? Or are these delivery services, are they also popular well, in LA? Delivery. Yeah. everything in LA, Or right? is it not because well, there's I mean, so much LA, traffic? I really think that the LA that I live in, you know, is like... I, I, I see now where there's like so much fantasy about the Laurel Canyons and the even the like Manson obsession because that was in LA where like before GPS, before Uber, before delivery services where like you could be in one canyon doing something, say with a group, say with a cult, and someone downhill from you in the canyon had no idea no what clue, you were up to. Right. Wow. Yeah, okay. and so it's this like kind of like weird like kind of libertarian semi-futuristic, semi-like-feudal vibe. It used to be like kind of like par- like at least minimally like like paradise for the libertarian dream. You could have like your Laurel Canyon house and you never had to leave except to get groceries like once a week or whatever. But now it's like, yeah. So why music? I mean, obviously you're incredibly talented, so that's one easy outlet. But you also yeah. obviously can organize <laughs> your thoughts in words, both in writing and, and speaking. And so what for you is the draw specifically for putting these thoughts also to sounds and rhythms with a certain kind of aesthetic world, um, packaging them as an album, circulating them via the various channels we have from Bandcamp to Spotify to live performance. Yeah. Like, What's the desire vector for you in music? Well, and you know, initially I, I pursued like just a, a truly academic path and I didn't have this like term of art until I heard ContraPoints use it. But now I consider myself an ex-academic, <laughs> um, even though I'm obviously going to finish my dissertation and probably pursue further uh, studies at another juncture. But like, obviously everybody knows like philosophy is like super adversarial and like macho and even in continental philosophy departments there's like a insane like ego hubris just like rationality guy x you know what i, I don't mean? know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so when i first started my graduate studies I, I became like equally obsessed by kant and hegel on the one hand and then freud on the other hand and then i started pursuing my own psychoanalysis and as a patient in psychoanalysis i came to realize the etiology of my obsession with thoughts and the history of, of thought and specifically in the form of philosophy. And I kind of like reached a crossroads personally, therapeutically, where I was like, oh, if I pursue academic philosophy for my entire life, like I will have hitched my psychic and personal wagon to something which is for me, it is like born of like a sort of symptomatic place. Mm-hmm. Like you know, my biography or whatever, like this is just totally a personal explanation. So I don't mean to like be trying to make a claim here, but my uh, siblings are disabled. And from a very young age, I became like a really avid translator for them and like invested so much psychic energy in like a certain kind of rationality and rationalization and, and translation that I then became good at philosophy in virtue of that biography, (laughs) biographical fact. So like I started to make music 
again quite seriously when I first moved to Germany after my master's degree. And at that time, I was like thinking a lot about like, what does philosophy mean to me and finding that kind of like affect first expressive experiences I was having making music to just be so much richer. Mm. And then the people that I connected with, you know, I literally went like from like my, my childhood home to college to a master's degree in a PhD granting program. All of a sudden, like for the first time in my life, I was encountering a totally different group of people with a totally different set of values going into a lot more like non-normative spaces, like a lot more like queer spaces and a lot more just like interesting spaces, like literally not like spaces filled with desks. <laughs> um, and I just found myself like feeling so much more enriched by that, that that was like when I really started to become an ex-academic. That makes a, yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. I mean, do you think like compared to other albums since, uh, it was your fifth album? Yeah. Um, did you get the inspiration more from like external tur like turbulence as opposed to aspiration or something? Yeah, that's actually such that's so helpful for for me to put it that way because like I found myself through pressure from like management and uh, internal pressure, which was like not disconnected from platform pressure. Um, on my fourth record, I found that like I was like making a lot of decisions. First off, I also like was trying experimenting with antidepressants that plus platform pressures. Like I feel like I made a record, which there are a lot of moments on that record where I'm like, damn, this is not interesting mm -hmm. to me. And so like to come back to the music and be like, well, what do I want to do then? I mean, I've made this fifth record and it's like by far my least streamed record, but it's mm -hmm. also like the record that I feel like people around the world have connected with the most since my first record, maybe. Um, you look at there's, there's like SoundCloud rappers who have like uh, like multiple songs that literally like tens of millions, if not a hundred million streams. Yeah. But they're not like touring like around no. the world or like anything. Yeah. Right. So what I does wonder it even how, mean to stream? The thing is that's that's actually something too that I wondered because obviously I mean you're pretty successful and like I mean press critically tour wise. I mean, if, what, if there's a parallel, I think, I guess, world outside of the Spotify metric that's still, like, super significant, though, yeah? For sure. And, I mean, how, is there, like... Uh, I mean, I have friends whose labels don't put their music on streaming services, and they tour the world with good consistency and earn a, you know, a, a, a meaningful living from their music. Right. I mean, it's just so... No, I, it sucks. It, it really sucks. Something I think about a lot is like the, just the consequences of the ephemerization of media through these platforms. Like, you know, I, I read a, a thing recently, I don't know if it was like a Pelly thing or, or someone else, but the majority of Spotify users are like quite young uh -huh. and uh, sort of like exit surveys for them. They report the search functionality of the application, which I think like our generation, we're like, Spotify is a massive music library. I can search out anything yeah, I want. Yeah, yeah. They report the search functionality as an accidental feature of the application, right, mm -hmm. right. which means the way that they use the application is they go to the home button and they click the fucking lunchtime disco tile and then they <laughs> listen. And when they hit, when they hear like song X that they like and they hit thumbs up, that doesn't mean that they want to hear that song again. It actually means I like the character of that song. I don't want to hear that song again, but something like that would yeah. be good. 
you know how difficult it is to like get to the artist when you're finding like a song? You have to like click like nine yeah, yeah. little buttons or whatever. So I really think that like at the end of the day, eventually the streaming services will just like eliminate artists and eliminate touring. And it's like quite a, a vicious uh, factor, I think. Eliminate artists? How will that work? Well, I think that they'll just have, you know, like they remember the scandal where they were like making the tracks that were on their playlist, they were yeah. paying people. Oh, okay. So they'd That's pay like, okay, sure. they'd pay yeah. me like, you know, $500 to make an ambient track that w- they would then get all the royalties on. But ev- eventually also they'll just be like AI generated music. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this too. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's some aspect of AI where, where I can imagine it doing a pretty good job making music. There's only 12 notes in the Western scale. <laughs> it's not like that hard to, it wouldn't be that hard for machine learning to kind of crack the code, so to speak. But then when, when right. it comes down to like timbre and instrument and the quality of sound, it's like when you listen to these guys like data bots, right? Who are like, you know, they're like train a model on um, free jazz or like a tech technical death metal album. Things that are really disjointed in tempo work in disjointed arrangement work kind of the best mm. and the, the the machine will just generate like this like they have like a 24 7 free jazz ai generated <laughs> stream on and it's just like wild drum rolls and like mild like bitches brew like trumpet like you know going off and it sounds like free jazz i guess you know it kind of works but i mean i was thinking that you know a machine learning is really good at kind of like picking up on the tropes like the sort of shared features within a data set. And then I started thinking about kind of like, I mean, your last album too, where it's like kind of the most interesting music right now is specifically focused on making like unique pastiche of like a lot of varied references. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't fit into a, cause genres are ultimately genres themselves are ultimately a set of tropes, right. That are used in different ways for different melodies and whatever. But it's like, I could imagine that actually, Making music that's sort of like outside of genre or just a complex pastiche of multiple references, like AI would have a hard time like pinpointing or generating something really novel, I imagine, in terms of timbre, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't doubt that AI could. But I mean, you could train it on your album and it would make something that sounds like your album. Yeah. But it couldn't make well, something no. that sounds like your next album. I think that's correct, but I think it could um, it could produce like just a massive amount of concatenations, and then someone yeah, right. could come like in an, and be like, an "Oh, this whisper. is lit." Yeah, that'll definitely be increasingly a thing. But in a way, that's already so like curious. I was speaking with the I I think I can say this. I just want to say what I was talking with the people at Ableton about. I signed an NDA, so <laughs> <laughs> um, I was speaking with them this week, and I was telling them that like in a way, I already think that Ableton does in a problematic way I think it does what you're worried about already like I feel like nowadays you put on a record and you go oh this was made on Ableton or you Uh go oh this wasn't made on Ableton what does it sound like it sounds like something else you know like I I think that the the future in the future the sort of like ML contributions will be like on the order of like voicing decisions or instrument decisions or like you know like when I'm rifling through a VST 
and I'm like auditioning different synth sounds for a part. And then I go like, Ooh, that'd be cool. Let me flag that. Like, Oh no, that's better. Like I didn't even think about using something that had that aspect to it. Like that to me is not that different than how the ML will be actively be a part of our music making in the future. But I, mean, I still think they're like my whole thing. And this is literally my dissertation is that we are like sui generis axiologically capable creatures. There's nothing like us. There never has been. As far as we can tell, we've like looked so far out into space to distances which functionally aren't even distances. They're so abstract. They're just <laughs> monumental on a scale we can't even comprehend. There's nothing else like us. Like the, the, the distinction has to be our like unique axiological capacity, like our valuing capacities. Our ability to say, I like this now. I don't like this now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, our our capacity to say this is beautiful. Yeah, I love this. To take action. Yeah, like these are the decisive factors. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, Dr. Luke already basically uses an AI type trick, where he'll <laughs> like take like a number one song from 1986, write a whole new like electronic pop song <laughs> over top of it. Right. So it's all harmonic, follows the same things, whatever, and then pull the original track out from under it. So you can't tell what it was built on top of, but it has certain characteristics of a number one song. Right. I mean, that's kind of... This is also why like AR is like a really powerful, but ultimately like slippery metaphor concept because like the way you just described Dr. Luke's practice is just like a really capitalistically aggressive, like reified version of the way all creation happens over right, against right, right. the canon or a certain set of influences or whatever. I've never been shy about like admitting the like interfacing that's going on in my music with like a set of influences. Like it's always been as important to me as making the music as sharing the music that I'm listening to. Right. The history of music has always yeah. just been iterating on other influences. Yeah. That's like one of those things you, you, you uh, finally uh, surrender to when you get older. I remember when I was young making music, I thought I had to make everything from scratch. Oh yeah, like, there's always the art the, student who's like, like I'm how not. Do you, there's always the art student who's like, I'm not going to look at the museum because I don't want to be influenced. You're like, oh, that's a I great hate, idea. There's literally nothing <laughs> I hate more than like when artists say things like, "Yeah, I just wanted to get like as far away from like other music as possible, so I didn't like listen to any music at all." I once <laughs> met a guy in Bushwick when I was working at a cafe there. And I was, he was like, I make music. I was like, oh, me too. He's, I was like, what are you working on? He's like, it's like guitar stuff. I was like, oh, what are you like listening to? He's like, nothing but my own music, man. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. Yeah, I mean, that's bad. I, oh. I mean, I understand the psychological motivation for doing that. And like, it almost never is going to lead to you making better work. <laughs> but I can, but I do think that like there, I, I for like, I'm, I'll, I'm just going to speak from an artist perspective, like, yeah, going to too many art fairs and stuff and seeing very much what it's doing, it can, can that can definitely well, be debilitating as well. But going well. to true, the true, art fair, you're also looking at this, like, uh, into the, the face of the, right, the, the, the capitalist you're machine that, like, well, your exactly. work that is beating and there's a, yeah. Right, but that is what you're, that's, like, that no. is the art. It's not like you. No, but yes. that's, like, a platform. Right. Yeah. That's not looking at, like, the, the going work to see that inspires you. Right. Yeah. But this is, right. like, a this is the thing, is that, like, without like consciousness of the difference between the platform and like the work that you value, like you only produce like work out of anxiety and terror. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I can imagine like, so I, there's a few artists I know who would probably, they wouldn't say something as strident as like, I don't look at any other art, but like definitely you can like, you ask them about 
Did you see this or this or this? They don't know. Yeah, see, I try not and to engage with too much contemporary art. I don't for, even know. A lot of times <laughs> I don't think it's like deliberate, but it does like if, yeah, like I think you do need to be in like the kind of ideal level of like ignorance. Like you can be too smart to be a good artist, for instance. You can probably mm. be too good, too smart to be a good musician, I think for the same yeah, reason. Yeah. And, and like there's a sweet spot there where. For like, sure. Yeah, dumb people are bad artists, but yeah. It, well, yeah, there's, <laughs> um, I always think that there's like, well, the like, metric of success is money too. Then that's especially true. And the metric yeah. of intelligence is like a certain kind of intelligence. All the metrics are yeah. questionable. <laughs> um, no, but I do think that there's like a reason that there's like a division of labor between the critic and the artist. Say. Right, right. People are always like, "Why don't you like put more of your like dissertation research in your work?" I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, what a nightmare! Can you imagine?" <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I can, um, but ooh. yeah, it would be tough. But then also the problem is now like critics are so subject to commerce pressures, platform pressures of their own that they all suck too. Who so. even do you respect as like a, <laughs> as a critic? I don't mean necessarily Other than names. Julian? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, actually other yeah, than you. Julian's dad. Julian's dad <laughs> loves my music. Oh, I, I got to call him after this. That's, so, that's true. And uh, yeah, he'll true. be very surprised. <laughs> so he'll be super excited. Um, but I mean like uh, what, like, okay, we, we talk about often on this cast, we talk about how the critical system for like reviewing art is mm. broken in a lot of ways and that, you know, the, the, the metrics or the, the critic is maybe like the people who will comment on your posts that, you know, or people in your like uh, telegram group or something, yeah. or your discord group. What for you, like where, where is the critic in your, in your like idea of, of your audience? I mean, I, I'm not asking you to name names more like no. structurally where's yeah. the critic? Who I is mean, the critic? it's the problem is I do feel like I have to be that for myself in uh -huh. my own work. I believe in like the authority of the critic and I have found at times the validation of like certain authorized critical outputs um, has been really satisfying, mm. super satisfying. But then like, I don't think there's like anything for me now other than like my friends and people who I really value, whose taste I really value. Like even people at labels that I've been a part of you know, which are like reputable, they're just like subjugated to such intense like commerce yeah. oriented pressures. I don't know if I have a good answer. I mean, we, I was like chatting with some friends the other day about like the, like we were like being nostalgic about like the blog era. <laughs> and like in particular, we were talking about like 20 jazz funk greats. Oh yeah. Dude, that shit used to, I used to literally get like a thrill out of going to the URL. <laughs> like it was thrilling. Yeah. And in your mind, like what would, what did you imagine you were going to see or receive when you arrived, when that page loaded? Like what was it that was driving the dopamine hit? Yeah. I mean, the discovery of something new that was going to like be concept generating for me. Yeah. Um, because it was bound by a certain social body that was identifiable for you and you felt like you were participating in like a social yeah, group. Yeah, no, no, I felt like I was speaking with Matt Dryhurst about this and we have, it's like on, it's published through the Creative Independent about how like music is this kind of like carrier signal. Right. Like music, you know, when I was like a tween, like it took me a long time to, to, to reach this conclusion, but music didn't like teach me how to be depressed. Like it, I... I had things occurring in me like in a, a nascent form, which I didn't have the conceptual whatever arsenal to to process and, and externalize. 
and I found the resources in the music. What were the what were the albums? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like even Alkaline Trio and Taking Back Sunday and shit like that. Okay. I know, I know. <laughs> okay, I mean this is. But this like, is, this is the thing, then record stores became like a really important part of my young life and like being like a 15 year old and having the like industrial music guy be like, you listen to shitty music. <laughs> maybe like, okay, man, like my bad, what should I get? Like I'll get, I'll get the like dashboard record and maybe something you suggest too. Like, and he like gave me a seven inch that was like current 93 on one side and Anthony and the Johnson's cripple and the starfish on the other side. And it totally shattered me, yeah. like blew my mind. Yeah. Um, and then the blogs were like the first order ephemerization that still contained that like record store energy where it was like, I have like some like knowledge that I, I want to impute as a norm to others. Yeah. Like the thing is now the, the venues that we go to, to find music by and large, they like are so cautious about imputing a norm. They, they are really happy to latch themselves to norms, which are like burning hot with the Billy Eilish, whatever. Yeah. With the yeah. capital, they're burning right. really hot on like, you know, millions of dollars spent on PR and advertising and cultivation of these kinds of artists. But like even the major music websites and magazines used to take a lot more risks. Cause it was just actually, maybe there was less to risk. Now they're all like, you know, they're all like businesses. So they have to figure things out. Like I get it. I'm not like, I'm not mad at anyone. Because I've found new corners of the internet where I, I'm able to discover music. And um, I feel like I, this year and last year, last few years, what I've discovered... Yeah, what are they? Yeah. Shout them out. <laughs> no, I mean, this guy runs a record store in New York and he sends out a mailer and he like tweeted recently. He was like, I guess someone from a magazine or something came to like interview him. And he was like, don't fucking come to interview me unless you're a tw like a teenager doing a book report. Like, what are you on? You know, like... So I don't want to like be too flagrant Blow him up. But I feel like yeah. blowing somebody up on the internet is actually kind of fine. We need a little bit of blowing up yeah. in some of these well, spaces. I mean, the signal to noise ratio is just so bad. I mean, I remember yeah. like yeah. how, I mean, I used to have like, there used to, I used to be on like forums or like places where like there was a group of people I trust and like I got information. It's almost like because, because of the noise, suddenly like finding a signal has like, more value than it did before. It has like more yeah. scarcity. And so you almost get jealously protected even more than you did in the past because it's so much harder to find. And it also becomes a, a, a source of value for you. Yeah. Because you are. That's the risk though. Right. So like, yeah, the risk is to become like um, sectarian, you know what I mean? And be like, we all know about this. Like, we don't want to tell anybody else. We don't want to, like, run the risk of becoming... This was, you know, this was literally the fantasy that, like, launched my music career. Like, I would say things in the press, like, I want to make pop music that isn't populist. And, like, people would go at me on Twitter and be like, is that even possible? I'd have, like, you know, 15 <laughs> tweet at the time. That was long. So now it's like there's, like, people are like... Tweet storm coming. It's like 97 tweets, like, <laughs> but it used to like be shorter. And like, you know, people would argue with me whether or not that's possible. And it, what I wanted to name with that was like a desire to have like your finger on, like, yeah. So uh, Matt said to me, Matt Dreyer said, um, music is in super abundance and purpose is in scarcity. That's true. That seems like really help, a helpful way to look at it. And there's a temptation when you find it to like still operate with a scarcity logic. 
be like, we have to hoard, like a hoarder's logic. Right. But that is like the idea of like a pop music that isn't populist would be like the really axiologically robust stuff, art, music, whatever, shared broadly and with like real generosity. That's like the dream, the fantasy maybe. Yeah. I mean, I also think we're kidding ourselves a little bit when we say, oh, we're going to, I mean, we're going to leak this idea and then it's going to get blown up immediately. Like if Virgil Abloh wants your idea, you're, you, all you have to do is whisper it at a club to one person and he's going to find it. Like I swear he's in everybody's Alexas. But like with stuff that's like pretty decent. <laughs> we haven't. We should, okay. Well, it's unplugged. It's unplugged. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's unplugged. Yeah. Um, Virgil, wait, Virgil, yeah, Virgil, has Alexa. Virgil has a deal with Amazon that like they listen for certain keywords he feeds them, like <laughs> experimental music. It's so true. Yeah, def- definitely true. Actually, I wonder. You say the word Demna. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it, Virgil no. gets a push notification yeah. to his iPhone or his watch. Yeah. But, you know, but I think, you know, on most of the stuff that you're saying is only going to, unless, you know, there are these super influencers or whatever. But I mean, you know, we have this luxury of speaking to a lot of people who have at least medium influence and you can scream something from the top of your lungs and it's still only going to reach the people that are directly interested in that scene. So check this out. I did some creative consultancy at a, like a media agency in Los Angeles over the winter. And they were like, we had this like campaign with like a really big brand, like, you know, one of the big one, like Pepsi McDonald's level, big brand. And they were like, we need some like micro influencers. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, I think I know a lot of micro influencers. And they were, I was like, what's the follower uh, floor for micro influencers? And it was a hundred thousand followers. Really? Really? So when I we go, it was like thirty k or something. Yeah, I so. yeah no. from micro. So like, and then it was like it depends on the mega. brand. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. So it scales. Yeah. So it's definitely nano influencers. Then. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what it's called, nano, right? No, but, but when we when like we we're like, you know, when I'm like, I just want to use my platform. It's like I have like. In total, like 70,000 people across Instagram and Twitter or something. And most of them are like, you know, random kids in like Kaohsiung, Taiwan and shit. Like I'm not touching anything. You know uh-huh. what I mean? I, uh-huh. Maybe I'm literally touching like impacting people. Right. But I'm not like um, making cultural waves. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's time to pivot quite yet into a question about like data and, and computation, <laughs> but it just, it is interesting to know that even that metric, which on a human scale seems very large, one cannot yeah. know 70,000 people individually. That's not possible to right. know 70,000 people in any meaningful way. Right. Far beyond the human scale or the town scale, even like that's like that's like you know small city scale, right? Right. Um, and yet, in the eyes of capital, that metric is negligible. It's beyond. It's marginal. It's like you know uh, measuring like a, what are they, a rounding error yeah, in, yeah. in the idea of big capital metrics. But maybe it's not quite time to pivot to that conversation. But I think it's an interesting example. For sure, for sure. I mean, I think that this is like um, a question about like making sure we are as like leftists, making sure we have the right scales in view when we're looking at political problems. Yeah. Oh my God. Right. Wow. So we're I like, if I wish we, we get... ever talked about that. On that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If only there were a podcast that I listened to that talk about that. Um, no, but like, I really think it's important to remember that when like 50,000 people show up for a state sanctioned protest or whatever, like that's a drop 
in the bucket. Like the, yeah. peop, the powers that be like literally buy and sell populations bigger than that daily. That's right. Yeah. There was what, 100,000, I think, that showed up in Berlin. For was there 100,000? Supposedly. Yeah. I heard 50,000, but we'll, I, I guess saw we should 80 look. and then I saw another 100. So I think it was amazing in there. That's, See, a lot. that's amazing. I mean, that's amazing. And sure. It's like to roughly one, one fifteenth of the number of Instagram followers that Doritos has. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, come on. I mean, with that many people, of course there's going to be, there is no planet B science. Like, it was mostly that. It was almost all yeah. that. I have, you know, that I, was, I need to like, like not a novelty to generate though, if you're going to. I need to like check, but like one thing I've been tracking, uh, this week on Instagram is like, um, the leftist plans in New York city. Like I follow a lot of like Insta leftists. Uh, I, they would kill me if they knew I had just called them Insta leftists, <laughs> but um, who are planning like little sort of like local sub protests within the climate movement to try and like at least minimally radicalize the messaging. And I want to see how that action worked out for them. But I didn't see any of that really. I didn't see this anti-fascist group that you saw. I mean, that was a small, and that was also very LARP, yeah. Antifa. It wasn't like it wasn't truly radical. It just was with the aesthetics of that more so than. And it didn't have like a pedagogical impulse. Like they weren't like handing no. out literature. Absolutely not. Because that was a big strategy for people in New York was to like prepare literature. I, was, I distribute. saw a little bit of that for sure. There was some of that, but no, that wasn't related to this group. Not the one that had police escorts. That was yeah. They were a, a rowdy gang. I mean, I remember though in Occupy. Sorry, I always feel like an old lady when I bring out these no, references. I love your old Occupy stories. Shut up. Uh, back at, <laughs> at Zuccotti Park. <laughs> you know how you know how proud I am. You served, right? <laughs> served. In the- you know how proud I am. You served. <laughs> <laughs> you see the stripes on my. <laughs> hey, I saw. Epilates. Hey, I was at Zuccotti Park when Judith Butler spoke to the group. <laughs> oh yeah. Literally, I, I was there. Yeah, I, I yeah I, I was too. We must have um, crossed. Yeah, seen each other across the cross pizzas yeah cross pizzas yeah um <laughs> but i will say that like that like the the like community that i was a part of like the things that we organized around was was putting different alternate messaging into the protest scene so writing writing protest signs that were like a little bit absurdist this sort of like deterrent keywords you know that 99 percent thing got old really fast right and people yeah. would sort of get toned up to it or this like really pat but, like liberal centrist but messaging. also the 99 percent thing is the only i mean as far as Co- I can tell that's the only lasting impact whatsoever that Occupy had was instilling that kind of idea. It's scope aware. It's the most important. No, it was also an amazing uh, concept, like contribution to the conceptual canon for contemporary leftism. That's definitely true. I agree. That's definitely true. I mean, I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to knock it by saying that's the only accomplishment, but that is the only accomplishment. I don't mean to knock like the best slogan ever written in the 21st century, like whatever (laughs) props to that. I'm just saying that like, you know, Gucci do the dishes was better. Yes. Oh my God. I remember your stories fondly. Yeah. You said, I always, always sit on your knee. And- <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know what? Just fuck all of you. But whatever. Like, all I'm going to say is that, like, that that was like a lot. It was like definitely fun, like, thinking through alternate language. It was effective right. in the streets because it started conversations on that level. And it was also the most mediagenic. So it was the stuff that got picked up. And, like, whatever, like, micro nano, like, ripple that that made. Yeah. 
during that time was effective. So like, I think that in these protests, unfortunately they, they are seen as this incredibly centrist liberal, like, you know, uh, I don't know, political duty. They're, they're somehow, they're not seen, I mean, in Hong Kong, it's a different story. Well, that's, but, I think we should talk about that. Yeah, that's a very but, different story. Um, and yeah. I, and I just wanted to return very quickly to this original question. Like, what was the quality that was missing? Like, what was the, not like, I, I know what they look like. I, I hear your description of it. But what do you think it was that kept that energy from emerging? Was it because it was a daytime protest? Because it was so coded It's like a beautiful by, ass day. Yeah. <laughs> nice fall, crisp fall day. True, but I mean, so, but like. It shouldn't but have like, been that nice. It should have been like Was it because of like children yeah. vector? It's all built around this like, you know, saint, like, you know, Jean d'Arc, like Greta Thunberg, like type figure. Like, what yeah. do you think it was that prevented that kind of radicalism or is that just not an effective single signal in our like incredibly jaded hyper memified? No, it is an effective like, symbol. So there wh- wasn't what, an what, adver- there wasn't an adversary. There wasn't any actionables. Well, I guess it's a problem with climate, right? The yeah, adversary that's a problem is, in general. Is, is too generalized. Well, I mean, it could be specific. It could be specific corporations with specific aims or trying to get a specific tax passed. You know, there was no it's everything there was at no, once. <laughs> there was no goals at all. It was just consciousness raising. Do you but think, I think it was a goal issue? I don't think or, it's. I don't think it's a. I mean, I think that. Occupy was like expressly anti-teleological, at least at the start. It was like, we don't have, we're not interested in this or that bit of legislature. Like, and it still felt like there was a political affect at those original Occupy things in New York or Chicago or wherever. So I don't think it's just that it was lacking a goal, which it surely was lacking a goal. I think that it has something to do with like, whatever, like some quantum of intolerability. You know what I mean? Like, I think that like involving the kids is a cool gesture because like the, the threshold for intolerability for adults is obviously taken in the West to be higher than the threshold for intolerability for children. We hate to see our children suffer, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, like workers, whatever. But um, <laughs> I think involving the kids, it also makes it, like it, it's a, again like a double-edged thing where like it is tempting because if you can show that the children will burn, that's powerful. But you don't want to talk about the children burning with the children there. But but the children know that they are going to burn. What? Why don't like the... that's what I actually my reason for trying to be optimistic from the jump is that I actually think that the kids walking out of high school, however many weeks they've been doing it, all all these kids organizing is way more powerful than their parents showing up with them on this yeah, one day. Yeah, I agree. Like that is inspiring to me and the kids have to like do it. They have to drive this whole thing, but that's because they have in view, like they, they are already experienced this, the psychological suffering, which is just the foreshadowing of the physical I mean, mental suffering they'll experience. To play a little bit of devil's advocate there, they're only Please. experiencing that psychological trauma because adults are instilling it in them that they're going to, Social media is though, don't you think? I mean, they're all like looking on social media, like they're sharing with each other. Sure, but I mean, in general, no, I disagree. I really think that that, no, I think they're receiving information from manifold sources, and they're receiving it in the way that I just described my finding my depression in the music. They are like Mm. anxious. Like I know toddlers who are anxious. (laughs) Seriously, I know like people who have kids who are like four and five years old who have anxiety about impending climate disaster. Yeah, sure. 
And so then they they have something inchoate forming in them that they can't speak to. They see it in a meme. Mm. They go, shit, that's the thing that I've been feeling. How does a five-year-old, how does that manifest itself? It's interesting that a five-year-old could have the kind of planetary consciousness or like scope that that they would would be aware of something. Well, because they're raised around, I mean, think, I mean, what's the first thing you get when you're a baby? Like a teddy, teddy bear, bear right? right? And then next thing you know, you're reading like books that are like, all the bears are dying. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like, I think it was one all of the your animal friends. Political beliefs I was able to have was like caring about the environment. Right. Yeah, and that's right. birthday and kindergarten. That's true. That's true. For sure. I mean, yeah. even just a minimally like Judeo Christian upbringing, you're exposed to certain concepts about the value of the natural world. And then you're right. like, oh, but also just like, again, like it's different in Berlin. And it is in LA, but like if you are a young person in Los Angeles, you are just exposed constantly to the absolutely abject suffering of your brothers and sisters. Mm. Right. And That's- there's no amount of like desensitization and no amount of like, like even if you're like some little posh asshole who's like from the age of four on, you're part of this like Venice like Abbott Kinney potlatch of like which four-year-old can wear the most acne studios clothing. <laughs> you still see the fucking suffering. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I really do believe that you still see the like human suffering. Right. I mean, I just don't know why tactically, like, you know, the kids aren't holding signs like you are killing us. You know? Yeah. Like, I think so. I think I saw there's some, some of those, of some but of they need to be more flagrant. And then I think the other thing too though is why aren't like the protesters getting personal? Like like literally like wanted for future genocide with like <laughs> the photo of the CEO and like yeah. date of birth and like yeah. address. Exactly. It's just like, it needs to get like, the people need to be shook. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. they're also like a totally, I mean, like we I know don't wanna, where you live. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to sound like and we're an under old age, person. So you get away with it. <laughs> no, but they are like a new generation of like surveilled people also. Yeah. So yeah. they're right. under right. extreme yeah. pressure to like not say too much and not like they don't want to like literally I can imagine like eight-year-olds with the consciousness of like if I make a sign that's like not it's like a too hot of a take like will I get roasted right like in the group uh, chat like or, or like, what if it turns out that that person president like, one day I think yeah, there's probably that, a lot of that consciousness actually that, kids and right no but now. even more than that you don't even have to it's like we used to think be president one day right. now it's like I won't get a job at Chipotle yeah, because true. of a flamboyant no, political it's true. view it's true but we, that's what about deranged like kid punks that are like we all hate this and, and you're like cool on the gram if you if you put a picture and you like let's murder this CEO or something and it's really radical that's gonna have to emerge yeah like, it's still gonna be at, at, like, the same reason that Punks didn't. I mean, this is gonna. I'm gonna get roasted right. for they this. Became, yeah, punks didn't change anything. Yeah. It's just too sectarian. Yeah, it's too small. Like, I just think like yeah, we should. I mean, the difference between this and the women's march, or pretty much any march that I've been to in the West, which largely you went to the women's march, the pussy hat march. I went to the pussy hat march in LA. In what city? I was there. There you go. <laughs> but that must have been similar from what I'm it hearing. It was way bigger, actually. Uh-huh. Way I bigger, guess. but it was just like absolute feel goodery. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I will say that at that moment the political change seemed so um sort of like the extent of it seemed so unknowable still it was so sudden uh that there was actually a moment of catharsis not necessarily that i had but i could i could respect it a little bit there just because of the just because of the timing and very clearly that same march today would feel like incredibly impotent and it already i mean it was ultimately but there was something reassuring about like uh none of us think this is normal i guess yeah yeah but this is like a much more 
ambient, slow burn kind of crisis thing where I don't feel yeah. like this is the right kind of response. And if you look at like Hong Kong, there's like there's five goals. They got one of them. They haven't gotten all of them. Like, I don't know what would happen if they actually achieved all of them. Clearly, that's not really the plan. But like there's actionables. There's an adversary. There's like an enabler of the adversary. Uh, there's much more tactical thinking about uh, about messaging and about strategies. I mean, I don't know. It's just like on another another scale. And I feel like there's a lot that the West can learn from from that kind of organizing. Well, but also the XR people are. This was not. This was the kids ditching school group. Right. It wasn't XR. It wasn't XR. It wasn't any number of other groups that have actionables and have strategies. Yeah. So this was like the women's march. The tactic was breadth and whatever collective unification. Right. So. Better than nothing. <laughs> That's yeah. what I'll say. I mean, clearly. For yeah, sure. Very much. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I just find it um, being around that kind of sentimentality when it's something like that I feel very gloomy about. It just is just, it's really triggering to me. Terrorism. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think also like <laughs> the episode, I got to slip it in. Yeah. Psychedelic I still think yeah. that you can't really say it. There, there's like, you know, this you thing cough. in psychoanalysis, <laughs> it's like a very interesting concept to me that, um, the same behavior can mask the same behavior. So I called the remix album that I put out, One Train Hides Another. Yeah. And the thought, that's like from, so that's a bit of poetic language to describe the same thing, which is like, so Freud in the negation paper, he talks about, I think it's in the negation paper. It might be in analyses, terminable and interminable. In any case, he talks about like, when do you know that therapy has been successful and can be completed? And he talks about the difference between like intellectual negation and some deeper affective metabolizing affective negation. And so I can be like, yeah, I spent the last 13 years angry at my sister because she got more attention from my mother and I want to have sex with my dad. And like, I can report that precisely and report it years and years and years in psychoanalysis and still not have said precisely that same phrase with the right affective yeah, signature yeah. or keystroke or whatever yeah. to like unlock my psychology and make my analysis meaningfully terminable or whatever. So I do wonder whether or not this um, entire thing today wasn't precisely a mechanism, like a broad and out in the open mechanism of like disavowal and deflection. Everybody being like, yes, we're acutely aware of the impending doom as literally a way of, of refusing to pronounce that same phrase, right? Mm -hmm. That's like the challenge. Go further. I mean, there's so many analogies I can think off of that model that I like to you know, iterate on, but just yeah. but in this particular way, can you, can you go farther on that? Yeah. I mean, what I mean to like point to is that the challenge isn't just like having the right actionables and the challenge isn't just like having the most, the like authentic commitment, right? Like now we have like an inauthentic commitment, uh -huh. but we need an authentic commitment. It's like, actually we are talking about something which is like potentially psychically so destabilizing that like I don't really know what it means to reckon with it. Uh -huh. Like it makes me very, very frightened, and 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 frankly, it's like a disabling sadness that that comes yep. over me when I really reckon with what we're discussing. And so, like, what what? How does that happen collectively? How do we like collectively get together and talk about this? So it's like in a way that practice. isn't going to be sentimental. We have this placeholder. We know these are the sentiments we need to somehow. But fill. it might be practice for deflection. In but the same turn, hmm. yeah, I think it's in. I think it's undecidable. 
Like, again, it's about the political political affect at the demo. If it, like, turns to a political energy, and I think it's incalculable. I mean, I'm just really, like, I, this is why occupation was so important because it was about just being there over and over yeah. and over all the time. Some days, like, you'd just be chatting with people and the conversation would have a political affect. Yeah. You couldn't really tell, like, what it was, like, what, what toppings were on the pizza that day or whatever. <laughs> Maybe this is a time to pivot, but the analogy that, that comes first to my mind is how you can have something that in form and in language is representing this thing, this climate strike, this calling to arms or right. calling to consciousness, but yet psychically isn't there yet. So it performs it, it says it, it uh, takes the form of it, but yet there's still some ineffable quality, some psychic quality that's not, that's not, I mean that in like a Freudian sense of psychic, like yeah. quality that's not there. When you switch to the computational, you can have something that in form, in language, um, in, in quality seems to be a protest, but yet psychically isn't. So you're going to have these yeah. false positives when you switch to the computational. Yeah or no? I mean, there's two things to say. One is there is this like psychic, psychological component like saying the thing you mean to say and not meaning what you meant to mean mm. or like not having the right affective whatever distribution there's also the fact that saying we resist what's happening isn't the same thing as the hanging the king from the entrails of the last priest or whatever <laughs> you know so like you know we need to know our enemies and i do think that that would be my one of my problems with today is there was no there was no negativity yeah that's like, mm. I really think that the negativity is essential. Yeah. yeah we have this is what to, I meant. Like, there was yeah. no adversaries. There was no, there yeah. was, there was sort of like complaining. Yeah. It was sort of like, that was as negative as it That's got. a systemic problem that we have today. I mean, there's like no negativity allowed on the platforms either. For right? sure. That's structural That's true. And also, I mean, feature. there are just like, there are a lot of targets, like very individuals that are responsible for a lot of the decisions that, I mean, of course yeah. it's a systemic thing, but there are people that could be targeted. And I think largely no oil executives are getting canceled. I don't know. Cause they just don't tweet controversial jokes. Like that's where all the energy is. And well, I think and it, they just can't be canceled they can't on social be. media. Well, of course you have to matter. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they can't. And also like, yeah, they're not going to be unemployable in their industry, obviously, yeah. but there could be a lot more emphasis on that kind of thing on like, yeah, on the personal. Cause it does, work clearly to some I mean it works the personal and also the computational stuff like this is where I think the value of the computational stuff really lies like we could be producing like really rigorous distributions of guilt based on analysis of 250 years of like extrapolated data about carbon emissions so like we could say like pretty lucidly how many nations, how many forests, et cetera, ExxonMobil is responsible for having destroyed. So the computation's really, really powerful. But it, the computation, like runaway um, algorithms generating this, this information isn't enough without human negativity behind it, right? Because right. like, I think something that I, I said to you earlier today was like, it's not like um, we didn't have like environmental consciousness before the Cold War and the global concepts that, of, you know, the surveillance concepts of climate change that are now in view for us or whatever. We had a moral relationship with nature and the kinds of like, you know, Mennonites and other groups who were conscious of this were like, go to the church and say, hey, you have to tell the king to stop or whomever. He can't pillage the land like this. It's, it is an affront to 
everything we value morally. And they were like, thank you, brother, for coming to us. Thank you so much. And then like later that night at like Gilles de Ray's place, the <laughs> preacher who's like a pedophile maniac with the prince is like, get this. The Mennonites believe that the Bible is going to change what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> like it's really working, right? <laughs> And so like us just having the computational data, which says, or the person's address, like, you know, why doesn't the kid go on Google and find Exxon's CEO and put a picture of his face on it? Maybe that could be galvanizing, but also like, it doesn't matter. The reason that the, the Lord invented the polizai in, at the advent of capitalism or whatever, they'll just invent another capital, another polizai now at this stage of capitalism. And they did right? that in order to show that that people who uh, took care of the land didn't actually own it, right? Precisely. It was like a psychological trick before it was even... Well, like, to to a psychological see, trick and yeah. straight up for anyone who was like, yo, this is the commons, we're taking it back. They were like, oh, we're going to beat you to death. Right. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I mean, I feel like we are in a structurally homologous moment now. We have an enclosure of the commons, except for now it's by digital capital, which isn't even individual CEOs. It's actually complex complex matrices of networks, data capture, corporations working together, global supply chains. It's not yeah. even a single individual that is responsible. Well, I mean, this is the same issue with, yes, you could lucidly say how much ExxonMobil specifically is responsible for, but that does not account for the systemic things that required Exxon to do that or like the fact that there would be some other entity that does the same thing but there's there was an inevitability about some of that stuff not all of it but that's why it's hard to elucidate like specific actions or decisions that they made that made things worse like that is actually hard to do new models core is its aggregator site found at https newmodels.io but we also have a thriving Discord community for our Patreon members. In fact, some of the people you've heard on our podcast are part of the real-time discussion. For access to the Discord, as well as all of our weekly conversational Topsoil episodes, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. I have a deep, I have a deep pivot. Okay. Maybe it's <laughs> Go too for it. deep. Go for it. Tom, you were the first person who, in seriousness told me via Twitter Twitter DMs that words were violence. <laughs> Is that true? Oh no. Yes. <laughs> really? Yes. And that scarred in, you forever. Two, I know for a fact it scarred you. I'm two, so in, sorry. No, go ahead. In two, I don't know, by 2008, I've had Twitter for over 10 years. I think I, I got on in 2010, so it couldn't have been before Okay, then. so maybe 2010, but I'm pretty What's sure you were the on first. That, uh, but, but, but what was what I, I talking wait. about? I, I, think I, was, I think I was just being a, a wise ass. It was the first time I ever encountered a Tom was your first SJ. critic? W or something, right? <laughs> like, I didn't wow. know. I love it. And well, like, and then of course, over the past ten years, we've been through quite a saga with this idea. Right. And I, but I, and and I think we're kind of all ended up in a similar scope aware place with it, where there's a aspect of it that needs to be taken seriously, and then there's a way where it can go a bit too far, or a, a way where suddenly you feel like signs are replacing the signified. Right. Um, and I wanted to ask you if you know, I guess, the recent history between that idea, really, of words being equitable to violence, breaking into our generation's mainstream and maybe the generation's younger. Because to me, it was like a total surprise, like not being really an academic and growing up in Virginia. Interesting. I mean, I don't really know off the top of my head, like why our generation, other than like a pretty simple, like causal story from like 
culture and academia and what's been popping. Like, I don't know if there's something that like some galvanizing moment or something, you know what I mean? Like I grew up in Colorado. I have such a neutral backbone in this weird way. Whereas like, I think about people my age in Germany, like seeing Rostock and being like, I am an anti-fascist from now on, like as kids seeing like what happened in Rostock on TV and being like, I will never be able to be conservative. Just say what Rostock right. is. Yeah, the like attack on the immigrant workers in the 90s, kind of like this really at the time, you know, shocking. I imagine the leftists at the time, like the 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 New Models podcast in 1991 or whatever, they were like, <laughs> we're not shocked by this resurgence of, of fascism. Like we've been watching it, da, 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 you know, like the head scratchers <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, like I, I like was introduced to politics in this really like Barnes and Noble way. <laughs> like I was like, you know, 10 years old and I got, I was like, I need to read Driving While Black. It's like a, a national bestseller. And like, I was like, we do need to free Mumia. Like I just got into this world and was like, yes. This is like- I saw a free, I, I saw a sign. Like, that's still going. I didn't realize. You saw a free Mumia sign yeah. at the climate no, strike? No, no, but at, a, at this, at a, it was like at a, a rent control strike in my neighborhood and there was a big, a big flag. And I was like, wow, really? I didn't know he was still alive. I was going to say, is he still alive? No, I think he's, it, he's I not thought freed. he was free. No, apparently not. Oh. Amazing. Or maybe the sentiment's I mean, still there even if he does get freed. I mean. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Don't yeah. free my Mia so the sentiment can remain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I have like a, an abstract philosophical answer about the violence of words thing, which is that like what we need, and this is like my broad answer to solve the computation problem and like all these things as well, is that what we need to focus on collectively as thinkers like, I don't mean to say that we should do this instead of political action. This is just like, you know, the task of people who are interested in this. And I think it is politically important. We need to like focus on what human flourishing is because we're like a form of life. Right. And so we like the plant, like the animal, you know, we determine based on our creaturely reality, like what allows us to flourish, what harms us, etc. This is that Mbembe article that came out last week that everyone was so hot on, which is just so amazing, is he's saying, he calls it human reason, universal human reason or whatever, but we don't have like a decolonial, cutting edge 21st century concept of the human and its form of life in view. If we did, then we would have in view the criteria by which we could distinguish between violent speech and speech which is frustrating you said as a derogatory term, they were only complaining. But there's also political complaint, which is revolutionary, mm -hmm. right? And complaint is like one of the first, there's irritability, then there's complaint. These are like steps on the path towards recognizing the intolerable conditions under which someone is working or living or, you know, married or whatever. And so like, I think that my take on the violence of language thing now is that I'm like a materialist. So Language is can be extremely violent. Right, of course. Language being violent is not violent in the same way that being like brutally beaten is violent. Yes. That's just insane. If you have <laughs> that, that view, you're just my wild. Well, that's my argument in 2009. Yeah. But though, isn't that, like, then maybe it's just like, the wrong word. I mean, coming back to this Akila Mbembe article, which I know has been somewhat, their opinion is split at this table a bit about it, but it was called Thoughts on the Planetary. I guess it was a conversation between Mbembe and the Norwegian newspaper Classic Compen in 2018. I wonder if we could like talk for a second about this idea of computational capitalism, how under 
computational capitalism, exploitation is more abstract. It's not laboring bodies working X number of hours, but emoting minds who are active at all times, even during sleep. And as more labor can be completed by machines, humans' main job will be to act as affect generators capable of moving uh, capital from one system to the next. They'll become slaves to this role, their consciousness harnessed by data collection. It's interesting to me because like my first takeaway from this was like, whoa, this is literally Mbembe like parroting Heidegger, <laughs> which is very uh, flamboyant philosophical move in 2019. Explain. Um, well, he's, in, he's a Nazi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and in academic world, the last like several years, Heidegger studies have been quite meaningfully to my mind twinned to the black notebooks, which were translated into English where he says a lot of Nazi-ass things. Mm-hmm. Like Wait, ideas of purity. Or- yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't Heidegger the chiller, though? No, 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 no. Chiller? He wasn't the chiller. Which, he, how do you mean? Like, he went to, he, he like went to Spain and he was like, yo, like, life is really about chilling. No. Oh, which one was that? <laughs> uh, which, which one is the chiller? Mm, I don't know. Yeah. You know, Spain, you, me, chilling. You, I don't know. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. I don't know. Okay, I guess it's not high. Tiesto. Tiesto. Who, who's, who's, the Tiesto. who's the 20th century, <laughs> who's century, who's sure. the 20th century <laughs> philosopher of chilling? <laughs> I, of like, I really don't know. Leave comments below. A German? You know. Okay. I think he was German and he was that just, just like, That just sounds incompatible already. <laughs> just chill. But you know, Heidegger has this argument that like since the Greeks, like reason has been unfolding in the direction of a completely instrumental form of reason, which Mbembe uses that precise language, instrumental reason. And instrumental reason, like, you know, like views the world and its objects as per se utilizable. Um, That's kind of like an extraction paradigm of relating to the world or whatever. You know, Heidegger has this amazing interview where he says, speaking with Der Spiegel, it's called in English, um, Only a God Can Save Us, where he's talking about like, we've gone to the moon. And he says when he saw the images of Earth from space, it was terrifying for him. It like sent chills down his spine because he realized that we would never be able to recover from the programs of utilization and reduction that uh, had he was worried were overtaking. And can you extrapolate a bit further? Like why, why was it the image of the Earth from afar, seeing it as an object, I guess, that made him think this. Yeah, I mean, he thought that we had reduced like our connection to being to simply a connection to a technology and world and framing kind of like cognitive interface. Like basically Heidegger's philosophy in on one analysis is we have an AR interface that allows us to see beings as usable and we are at risk of confusing the interface, confusing the map for the territory. And if we lose the territory and we lose sight of being, we lose sight of the entire metaphysical reason we're here and the entire metaphysical reason we think. So, you know, Mbembe is also like channeling this uh, was heißt denken, what is called thinking, what calls thinking to be thinking kind of language. So I was just really, I mean, we don't have to get too deep on the Heidegger stuff. I was just really, uh, you know, it's like what Deleuze would call like a productive misreading or it's like it's definitely a productive and kind of flamboyant inheritance. I mean, if that's true, that's kind of an amazing like proof of concept where he's saying like 
you know, you can take this thing and it can have other becomings. So he takes Heidegger, like a no-go philosopher, and he misuses it, yeah. almost as though it's a minor language or something he's speaking through. Yeah. I and mean, then applies quite- it to, you know, non, non, to, you know, an anti-fascist way, a, a, you know, an anti-colonialist, anti-fascist. Yeah. But unlike Heidegger, he insists on like the value of some kind of clarified human reason, right? That seems to be like the, the axiological upshot of the paper, the interview is like, we need to retrieve And I guess retrieval would be the Heideggerian language. Mbembe seems to put it in the future more. We need to work our way towards a decolonialized and and meaningfully universalized concept of human reason. Right. Which also this. He also talks about deborderization in terms of individual and individual identity. Yeah. Right. And other others. And that's a lot of Deleuze crossover there too. Like the idea of like multiples or the idea of becomings or like shared, shared bodies. Well, it's also, I mean, it was just so like flies in the face of so much of the kind of like identity political stuff that we see every day. But also it it just really does fly in the face of like all the late 20th century, early 21st century um, thinking about reason and its potential universalizability. Like he doesn't seem particularly optimistic. It wasn't like a cheery paper, Mm -mm. but he does seem to indicate that there could be a decolonialized reason, which like a lot of people I know who work on whether it's Latin American philosophy or Caribbean philosophy or on, you know, decolonial philosophy in other parts of the world, they're very suspicious of these kinds of, of things. And I, I was, I was surprised at many of the things he was saying. They're suspicious of Mbembe's framing or they're suspicious no. of the kinds of things he's <clears throat> also taking to task. They're su- yeah. no, no, they're suspicious of the kinds of things he was endorsing. Right. Uh-huh. The universalizability uh-huh. of reason, even some kind of, even after some program of clarification, transformation, like he obviously seems to say there is a potential expanded view of human reason that will save us and only that can save us. In the way that Heidegger said only a God can save us, Mbembe seems to be saying only a meaningfully cleansed of, you know, different forms of colonial rationality and extractive rationality and and, um, different forms of like reducing being to utilizable beings. He seemed to suggest that upon that like purification process, we could end up at something that could save us, Mm -hmm. right? And that could orient. This is why I was saying, I don't think he's anti-computation per se. I think he was saying that if that new form of reason orients computation, uh-huh. then we're going to be right. in a good position. That, that was my take. That was, I mean, yeah. I wasn't critical of the article. I was just sort of uh, what I thought was the interpretation of it that, right. was, that I thought was too simple. You got to be a little nervous to think that anyone was suggesting like destroy all pewters. Well, that was a different article. That That's the Guardian to. article. Oh, yeah. So right. The Guardian article specifically, they, come on. But wait, also wait, the wait, Guardian wait, article wait, also wait, says. Wait, more readers say what the article is. Oh, I don't know who. What is it? What is his name? Ben. I you, can find yeah, it's the now. guy who, the editor of, of or founder of Logic um, Magazine. <laughs> it's also funny. Yeah, and, that's hilarious. I mean, but the thing <laughs> is, he he kind of like he pushes it and says we need a Luddite revolution, um, which I don't think there's going to be a Luddite revolution. But I mean, the pendulum is so so far into computation having more and more control over our lives, like. I don't think it's a bad idea to have a counterbalance of certain people being like, wait, like let's, 
push back and try to free our lives of some of this technology. Also, the Luddite thing in his um, article is a reference to this noble, this guy noble, um, right, an academic, and his claim in his book is that the Luddites were originally saboteurs of a factory. Well, they were. Right. So then we definitely want to be Luddites in the sense of we want to be meaningfully, we need to be sabotaging the like... The meta factory that turns us all into just pure pewters and (laughs) pure utility. No, 100%. Yeah. Like we need, we, the, the main, I feel like you and I agree that one of the things that today's climate march was missing was the kind of energy that would be uh, a wrench in a machine. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so the Luddite thing seemed to me to just be, I guess I know it's, it's like polemically annoying, like, because we think now of Luddites as people like, I think obviously the worry is that it seems like this great dream of deceleration or like, let's just turn the page on this whole way of living and like go a different direction. Right. You know, and that's insanity. Also, it was specifically, I mean, I'm not even thinking of Luddites as the sort of derogatory term. I mean, yeah, they smashed looms. And so this is a type of technology that, yes, 200 years ago or whatever was displacing to a few thousand workers in England and like legitimately was a threat to their life. life. There is no way that we today would think that that technology is harmful to the commons. We would just, it's just not how we would think of that. And so I think that just kind of shows you that individuals acting in their own self-interest are very short-sighted and not actually very able to, to tell what kind of technology what? is going to become useful. the loom weaved. <laughs> <laughs> but Dan, I think also, I mean, I think that it's not so much just a protest against the looms, but also the speed at which technology was displacing people, right? And so it was part just slowing down this transformation or giving people a time to adjust psychologically, socially to it. You know, we saw when algorithms entered the financial markets in the Audis. I mean, we ended up in 2008 with like an insane financial crash because the rhythms of capital far exceeded what was a kind of human scale. And there was a lot of brutal human damage that came with that. And I think some of the pushback or the quote, quote, Luddite that's spoken about in this piece is also just like a resistance to the speed at which there is this Technologization. Technologization um, <laughs> of, of, of different capacities that were previously not connected to technology. I mean, technically, you know, there's been a debate about like, you know, the tool, but like, you know, as soon as you have a stick, you have technology, right? And that's an extension of the arm. I mean, that's- The thumb is technology. The thumb is technology. I mean, also but also technology. just to be- The voice is technology. Precedes epistemic, right? But that's just yeah, being course, macro yeah. too, I just, okay, the Luddites aren't going to win, but like- on a like zooming way out for a second, like I don't think it's a bad idea to have a counterforce to like the pewter overlords, to be honest. But hold on, look at the loom analogs that the writer offers. I don't think this is like a bomb ass article, by the way. I was just no, like, like minimally interested. I was conversing with um with uh, uh new models alum Benjamin Bratton on Twitter about this. And the examples that are given in the article as the loom analogs are people of color being brutalized by police surveillance mechanisms. Landlords evicting tenants with smart locks. Yeah, yeah. Health health insurers charging higher premiums because your Fitbit says you don't exercise enough. So these are like meaningfully smashable looms. Like these are things that we have to resist. 
and we have to resist like vigorously, right? But again, yeah, none of those things are, those are all behaviors that are not actually enabled by the tech. Like, or they're not caught. I don't think that's the, the source of those things. Maybe they're the means of a very specific type of persecution, but smart locks, I'm sorry, overall, they're not a hindrance to society. I don't think that that's where we should aim our angles. The people who are using it, obviously, like there's a way of legislating the landlords. That is one thing. I understand there's resistance there systemically. Again, I just like, it's very much, I think this is what Braddon said. It's like apes. Uh, shooting at their own shadows. I do see that logic here. Um, mm. I guess the question is what would be the the correct looms? Right. You know what I mean? Like uh, to bring it back to the climate strike, we don't have like eco-terrorists anymore. Uh, although, yeah, you know what I mean? Very is, much what I meant is, by there are valid targets and the CEOs animal, and people. The uh, animal rights people are more extreme than the people fighting climate change. Yeah, that is true. I and, did see a little bit of that too. I mean, yeah, I think it's like an easier mascot. You see pandas disappearing. It's like an easy thing to cohere a community. I mean, isn't around. that wild? Because you you rarely see animals being killed in film. Actually, violence against animals in film is considered more taboo yeah. than violence against Children. humans <laughs> yeah. in yeah, yeah. film, yeah, which is a true. bit bizarre. Which, if you actually think of the media we consume, it kind of makes sense why. Animal rights activists like are more extreme games. because you don't not, see right. Yeah. You don't see violence against animals, but we're totally but it's not only because of activism. It's just because like violence people, against humans. But it's not only activism that causes it. It's like literally just people get angry and write letters to to the production companies that are like because personally people just. I mean, it's, it's, right, it is but that is kind of wild, right? Yeah, no, I don't think it's like an an inbuilt, like innate psychological thing. I, I think it's a consequence that doesn't of make evolutionary sense. For no, no, it to it's be the in, consequence innate. of activism in like in Germany and the Netherlands and America in the seventies and eighties. Right. Like the reason that like, even like at the time, like Hodorowsky was like canceled and right. had to like huh. change his filmmaking ways. I mean, he should have changed them earlier because his movies suck. But <laughs> I mean, but think about it though. Like for that's real. my hot take for the whole pod. Yeah, Rusky sucks. I think like, that's a, I think at this point it's not even a hot take. Yeah. I think like that's like I live in LA, dude. So <laughs> I think at this point we're like, yes, okay, Are, fuck you're, those hats and. But like quick survey, like those hats are everywhere in LA. Yeah, right. <laughs> what's more disturbing though to see on film, like a uh, a person, a human being killed or an uh, animal being killed? Of course, I mean, well, we also depends on if they're a child or an adult. <laughs> yeah. Okay, adult human or animal being killed. I mean, I would, cute animal, cute animal. <laughs> yes, <laughs> animal definitely. It's right. Than, it's like in in it's. There's a whole gendered thing too. Also, I mean that Henneke film, okay, like well, Benny's video, where they kill. You see the like the animal, you know, the pig, the cat. I can't remember, but killed will make you never eat pork again. I mean, people talk about this too. They go like, you know, it, like being abusive to animals as a child is like a s sure sign of like psychopathy, psychopathy. sociopathy, right, right, right. schizophrenia. Meanwhile, like kids like are told to like idolize CEOs. Or G.I. Joe's yeah. or cops right. or whatever. Don't, right. don't you think there's a sort of benefit for the elites to desensitize humans to human violence? This is like my uh, my reading of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Could you give us your hot take on that, yeah, too? Uh, you have a great You should hot be take. like the film, uh, yeah, the new model yeah, film critic. Yeah, we should give you the new model film critic. so the long. I have takes. such a long take on this. Oh, but and we're, 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 already, we're already at our episode <laughs> limit. Are we? Should, we? should we end with the hot? Let's end with the hot take. That would be Is perfect. there anything else that we want to talk about music-wise, too? I feel yeah. like we, like... I was thinking just now when we were speaking, I have one music-related thought, which is a, a unifying thought for computation and music alike, which is I have a song on my most recent record called Vacant Boat, which is about climate disaster or whatever. And I have 
I describe in it my vision of the post-human Earth as an Earth populated by like really advanced AIs that we've trained, but because of our lack of real understanding of the difference between information and knowledge, the AIs are basically like seven or eight-year-olds and they're walking around the earth and seeing all of these extremely painstaking things that we did, like, you know, beautiful architecture, galleries full of art, um, you know, photographs of loved ones, photographs of loved pets, and they just don't have the conceptual mechanisms to process what value was because we were never, we gave them directives and we never gave them the capacity to inquire about the value of value. And so all these AIs are walking around the earth, like going, you know, like going to Hamburger Bahnhof and being like, I don't get it. Like, why did they spend so much time doing this? Like, oh shit, let's go to another gallery. And they like go to the Tate, you know, they like, they like swim over to the Tate and they're like, yeah, I still don't get it. And they just are like stuck in this like <laughs> infinite cycle of my subroutine could have done this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they just, we just like set the AIs up for like a, like a sad life of misunderstanding. I, I get the bit. I, mean, I sing the, about that. That's beautiful. That is, thank you. I think that's beautiful. You're also wearing a shirt right now. You're wearing a shirt that says free will, artificial intelligence, spirituality over like a weird <laughs> printed, like real, like all over print of like weird pastel 3D color. 3D globules. 3D blobules. I mean, to be fair, yeah, the t-shirt, the t-shirt is just like some like really basic ass streetwear, like uh, sci-fi fantasy is the but name of the company. Well, when it's placed uh, on the human that is you. Altogether, oh, feel, thank you, thank it feels you. coherent. Yeah, oh, sick. I mean, I just feel like there's the, the there's the argument for like merging with machines entirely so that they can understand our effective thinking, and like that is the goal, of course. So, I mean, but is it why? But how could that they is the goal? But why, why is it who? What, but that is the goal of but, building but, but, an AGI. But, but who's but who? But I mean, okay, so some people want to have a transhumanist like apparatus. The people who are building no, the AGI on, but, have those goals. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but they not, have like a literally religious view of what these machines are capable of, to my mind. Uh, yeah, I think some of them do. I think a lot of them don't. I think a lot of them are, are really pragmatic about it and about yeah. the limitations. But they do of believe it. that that's like right. the future. On they some feel level. it's pragmatic. They don't think it's inevitable. General intelligence. Do, knowing everything. Yeah, this is the thing is about the, the idea that there is some kind of decodable like nugget in my affect that my brain for some reason isn't capable of capturing but that another more advanced brain is capable of capturing. That to me is precisely a divine metaphysical view because it deposits in reality the existence of a totalized quantum of sense. Mm -hmm. So as if there is the total quantum of sense. It's just not, it's just beyond my grasp. But if I had slightly longer fingers or even different fingers that moved at a different rate, I could really grab that. That is ontotheology. The depositing of a um, stratum of completed sense in reality. That's just gotta be wrong. And I think that's a gimme, like a gimme for grownups. So, like, if your AI project starts from the idea that there exists the completed sense and we just need to actualize the machinery to access it, that's just not a conversation, really. I mean, I think that's fair enough, but I, I, I think that, like, that's kind of creating a straw man. And I feel like the people who I know who sure. are 
machine learning experts, Duncan, for instance, he does not have a religious belief in the capability of machine learning. I don't think, like, not at all. The people who who work at this stuff very much know the limitations. Absolutely, they but know the limitations. What, what the limitation is like being God. No, the limitations of of the yeah of just like of training data and like uh, how right. finitude in general. Yeah. So no, training I, data, our power, like our stamina. Yeah, I don't think I. There are obviously people who have religious beliefs in like singularitarian. Right, but, right. But there's a lot of people who think that there's a like you can make a lot of progress without getting to some sort of AI god state or needing that. Uh, yeah, I, I I just like I figured out something the other day that I think proves that um, uploading your consciousness is bullshit. <laughs> Tell. Identical <laughs> twins can't read each other's minds. <laughs> okay, but their brains aren't quantum, like, entangled. There's no quantum entanglement between their brains. Singularitarians think that there'll be a quantum entanglement between your uploaded consciousness and your... I mean, this yeah. is, okay, the theory of consciousness, obviously, whatever, but... I Haven't you read the three-body problem, man? <laughs> I actually have not read it. Is that Wait, is that, <laughs> is that the answer to my identical <laughs> twin response? <laughs> no, it's like, you know, it's like a super amazing... I've heard that novel. it's very good. Could, but it's I, about I like these it, aliens. I don't want to give away the the thing, but here, everybody, like if you're going to read it, like mute your headphones right now or whatever. But <laughs> these aliens like used quantum entanglement to like communicate across like extremely vast right. distances. And I mean, yada, that yada. will happen. Like we already can do that somewhat. There will be quantum communication. But I mean, like the, one of the better theories of consciousness is that there is like quantum effects within the neuron. Mm. That, and there's like a super state of all the different neurons together with quantum entangled. So it's not just like a, a digital function. That's which is also part of the problem of building a functional model of the human brain without having quantum computers because it's harder to simulate that. I understand. And also I think, yeah, it's also really important to note that Tom is really good at um, reviewing movies, and um, I would really like to hear the take of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> pivot. Okay, great pivot. I'll make it simple, and so people will like be even like more upset. But so like, Quentin Tarantino, it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, and I don't like my friend said to me at the end of my take, he was like, "You don't like Quentin Tarantino's movies." I was like, "Okay, fair, yeah, whatever." It was deep. And oh, <laughs> oh the so, climax take—that's for the next episode. Oh yeah, right. That's very good. okay. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a fairy tale evidently but the title indicates about a hollywood which avoids the weinstein scandal avoids the tragedy by tarantino's assessment of roman polanski and his hashtag cancellation right so like in the movie the only two figures that get flame thrown are the nazis the obvious like just straightforwardly evil villain of history the un, un you know unimpeachable moral judgment of the the Nazi flamethrowing is twinned with the attack on the liberal woman as they're walking up the driveway saying, yeah, that we shouldn't be shown so much violence, right? We shouldn't be shown so much violence in our media. The Manson family <laughs> weren't like SJWs being like, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have to look at so much violence on the, on the movie screen. They weren't like the critics of Tarantino. They were white nationalists <laughs> who were seeking to start a race riot. Right. Yeah. So like my big take on the movie is like basically Tarantino, like if you look at the women in the film, like you have like the Australian woman who like emasculates the, the director, you have Brad Pitt's wife who he kills because she's like a little bit annoying. It's just like pure flagrant <laughs> she's misogyny. She's a lot annoying, but yeah. Yeah, well, you still don't kill yeah, someone yeah, for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then the, the, the woman that he likes, 
you know, who saves him from being a sad man who's about to pass out of the out of out of Hollywood. The woman that he likes is a little girl that he can throw on the ground. Okay, mind you, at the end of the film, what happens my, to my reading is uh, DiCaprio character his film career not only isn't over, but he's about to be the star in the next Roman Polanski movie. And so instead of Sharon Tate being murdered and Roman Polanski becoming the Roman Polanski that we have today, right? Because he, you know, traumatized by Sharon Tate, he like became a pedophile. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Checks out. Checks out, right? No, but like my take on it is, so a lot of people know that um, Polanski abused that young woman at Jack Nicholson's house, the actual Jack Nicholson's house. And my take is that DiCaprio is... Jack Nicholson, basically. And so once upon a time in Hollywood, there would have been a series of events which didn't lead to Polanski having through tragedy to become a pedophile. <laughs> and escape the Europe. Okay. And then, one, yeah. yeah, and then there's no Weinstein. And then Polanski and Nicholson just get to continue this cabal of... Perfect filmmaking. Yeah, <laughs> of perfect filmmaking, exactly. No, but so like, you know, there'd be no need for Tarantino level violence because uh, Polanski would have been saved. And now do climax. <laughs> <laughs> that was quick. You did a bridge really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Climax, this one's climax good is a little bit more obvious, right? Because the like, Gaspar Noé film, the Gaspar Noé film, like, you know, it the, starts, he goes, this is an unapologetically French film. Like, I think this is also like an evil film, but I like it more because it's got like techno in it instead of like this stupid ass, like Bruce Lee nostalgia thing, whatever <laughs> happens in once upon a time in Hollywood. But so, he goes, this is an unapologetically French film. And then the entire film takes place under this sequin French flag, right? And the French dream that Climax represents the climax of is, of course, the dream of America, the dream of the tennis court oath, the dream of the French Revolution, like the dream of contemporary, enlightened, liberal democracy. And, and multiculturalism. And with it, multiculturalism. And so that's what the group of dancers represents is the kind of multicultural France of the late 20th century or early 21st century or whatever. And, you know, the, the film starts and they're all just like living in the multicultural hedon, hedonic like dreamscape and just like supporting each other and loving each other. And everybody's there. You know, there's like the people from all corners of the world and all orientations. And then obviously it it dissolves into complete um, massacre and murder. And then the child, i.e. the future, dies trapped in that electricity room and like the machine room room or whatever. Screaming. And if you look at the topology or topography of the film, there is the space of the dream of France, which is the dream of liberal, you know, multicultural, globalized democracy or whatever and outside of that is just two factors and only two factors as far as the film itself lays out terrible climate so terrible winter uninhabitable uninhabitable land and the police the police are the only people in that in that space and so like you know the film starts and they're like all having fun and then they're like oh let's all join together and kill the like lone muslim guy at the party so they like no reason Basically for no reason, but it's also gives them a feeling of solidarity. So like, again, Gaspar Noe is like annoying because it's like so on the nose yeah. in these yeah. cheesy ass I haven't ways. seen this movie, but the way you're describing it, I'm like, okay. I'll yeah. And then of course one. there's like the, like, there's so much different, like Gaspar Noe is like a racist. His organization of signs is racist and extremely misogynistic. He loves violence against women. You know, he's like 
and one of these terror enfant terrible. So it's like, he's like, do I love... Same age as Quentin Tarantino. Same age. Yeah, so he's like, do I love to be violent against women or do you love to watch it? Like, you know, like, <laughs> like that's like his fucking... But Tarantino's got the exact same fucking language. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, these guys are really... They merit like a joint study. Mean, meanwhile, yeah, every a twin review for New Yorker. Every yeah. PhD student who's writing on Tarantino and Noe right now is like, "Yeah, no shit, dude." Like, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many of those are listening. I was gonna say, say. honestly, at least ninety percent of the existing <laughs> ones listen to New Models. <laughs> okay. They don't not know about New Models. Fair <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> All right, Tom Krell, thank you for being on the New Models podcast. Good show. Thank you. Yeah, Very thank good. you, everybody. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Definitely check out um, his record, The Ante Room, and his recent EP, One Train Hides Another. What are you gonna What are you gonna have to do to get inspired for the next one? You got? Do you have a seed already? Yeah, I do for sure. Good. I'm glad. It's like uh, I'm really interested in like super fucked mutant forms of verdantness. Turn up. Nice. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We'll check in. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast and a huge thank you to Tom Krell for joining us. Make sure you listen to the most recent How to Dress Well album, The Ante Room, as well as the Remix EP. Both are really, really excellent, and I'm not just saying that, and my dad agrees. He knows. We're also excited to tell you that thanks to Holly Herndon, New Models is included in this year's Sure 24 list, an initiative of Mixcloud and the professional audio equipment company Sure that highlights new musicians and audio projects that are pushing audio culture forward. They sent us a big box of stuff, including this nice, warm, rich SM7B you're listening to right now. There are actually a few people in the New Models community that are on the list this year, including musicians Debit and Bergsonist. So big thank you to Holly, Mixcloud, and Shore. And go to 24.shore.com to check out the whole 2019 roster. I think you can also vote for us. Let's try to get Team Holly to sweep it. Lastly, thank you to Joel Midden and the Big Cartel team. We just produced some new merch, which you can find at newmodels.bigcartel.com. We have some long sleeve tie-dye shirts there that are flames. Soul Flames Big Cartel uh, gave us some extra special help with our site. I'll leave it at that. Patreon.com slash new models if you want to join our Discord and get access to all the other conversational podcasts we release. See you next episode.